Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Today, the part of Josie Long will be played by Helen Chersky, so it's Helen and Robin's Book Shambles. Uh, Not for the first time either. We've done a few of these together, haven't we? We have. It's been brilliant. And this is a particularly exciting one. This is a a book I don't think is giving anything away. It's only giving a little bit away to say I read straight through it. Like, I'm a fast reader and I read a lot, but it's very rarely that I just sit and read all the way through a book from beginning to end on the same day, and I did that with this book. So it's a very good one to talk about. Well, it's the perfect mix for you, isn't it? Because two things that you love, space exploration and murders. And the two things that have driven your career more than anything else, I think. Because uh, we're going to be talking about The Apollo Murders by uh, uh, Chris Hadfield, which is a really interesting... It is. I, I don't read many thrillers. And so I had the same as you. I just kind of... And I always want to read more. It's just thrillers are low in terms of the... But you've got to learn about this subject today. Um, but yeah, it's it's absolutely great. And I'm going to... As everyone knows who's listened to this, I will also, because at the same time... My my book has just come out, so I'll be mercilessly plugging my book. And I'm pleased to say uh, that our guest today gave uh, read my book and gave me uh, a lovely quote as well. I've got a lovely quote from uh, Chris Hadfield on the back, which I'd like to read, but would just look arrogant. So I'm not going to. But anyway, my book, The Importance of Being Interested, is... Uh, and I'll probably, at the time that this goes out, I don't know what town I'll be in, but I'm on a tour of uh, 111 different bookshops. So I should be in a town near you, either today, tomorrow or yesterday. And I'm going to interject with some other live dates we've got coming up. We're going to be at the Norwich Science Festival at the end of October with a number of shows with Robin and Helen and Chris Lintot and Dean Burnett and others. Norwich Science Festival website has all the details and tickets for those. Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People is on sale now, December 10, 11, 17 and 18 at King's Place. All hosted by Robin... All profits to charity, as always. Lots of special guests already announced, like Helen, Mark Watson, Jocelyn Belburn-Nell, Nikesh Shukla, Dave Lindo, Jess Wade, Matt Parker, lots more. CosmicShambles.com slash nine lessons for tickets and details about that. And we have also announced this week that Brian Cox and Robin Ince's Christmas Compendium of Reason will return in 2021, but we won't be at... Hammersmith Apollo this year, we are moving to the Royal Albert Hall. So cosmicshambles.com slash compendium is where you can find out all the information about that. And if you are a Patreon supporter of Cosmic Shambles or Book Shambles, patreon.com slash book shambles, you can get tickets ahead of the general public today if you're listening to this podcast on day of release thursday the 14th of october general public tickets go on sale tomorrow on october 15th but if you are a patreon supporter or you sign up today you can get the best tickets ahead of everyone else right now here is uh, our guest for today it is lovely to have him join us chris hadfield Before we even start talking about your uh, your book, though, I want to talk a little bit about the background for you as a reader because you are a big. I mean, this is this is your first fiction. This is a full on thriller, and is this kind of your favourite genre? 
It is. I, I mean, I read a lot of technical stuff and, and I'm reading a lot about artificial intelligence and human machine interface and stuff right now. I find that interesting. But when I want to truly escape and, and, uh, and have a, a time out from my normal life, I pick up something that is a complex story with thrills and surprises and twists and turns and some sort of protagonist that, uh, that intrigues or, or interests me or, or maybe even uh, is someone that I might want to model myself after. And so, yeah, you know, right back from, gosh, Ed, Edgar Rice Burroughs and Sherlock Holmes, you know, with Arthur Conan Doyle and, and everybody since, I, I've always loved that type of book. What this book really made me notice is how much these types of books are filled, like the detail is part of the suspense, right? What kind of what keeps the story running along is that, you know, you want to know what happens next. And there's this fascinating detail which pads it out. And I'd never really thought about how much that detail, normally, obviously, writers have to do a huge amount of research to find the detail to kind of, you know, bring a story its full richness. Whereas obviously that was the bit that was was all in your head. And it was just really interesting that I'd never thought about how much, um, yeah, the, the detail is such a foundation of story because it, it kind of strings people out. You have to wait. It's interesting in itself, but it's also, um, you know, it keeps you waiting. Did, were you aware of that as you were writing it? Yes, uh, I I looked closely, you know, like, like I've learned to do everything in my life. If you want to learn to fly, a, you know, an F-18, then, then first you start with fundamental aerodynamics and airmanship. And then you look at how this machine was built and what are its limitations and strengths and how is it going to fail? And then then you learn how to drive it and pilot it and how and then how things can go wrong. That's how I approached writing fiction as well. Do read, you know, I read uh, Stephen King's on writing and uh, watched, uh, you know, James Patterson's uh, masterclass and, and things like that. So, okay, how do, how do these really successful writers do it? And then I just read a whole bunch of books looking at the details. How do they put these things together? And you're right, the suspension of, of re reveal, you know, but that's lovely. You know, it's like, oh, come on, it's coming, it's coming. But, but I got to read this, this paragraph too. And, and sort of, you know, you know, someone's about to get murdered. But meanwhile, uh, you know, the view out the window and the sun just breaking and there's this bird that lands and is and taps on the window and then the knife struck, you know, and it's 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 the lovely little sort of thought off to the side so that it helps build the suspense. It's it's vivid in movies and television shows, but it was really fun to see how other authors had done that in books and then try and figure a way to weave that into a, a space flight like in the Apollo murders. Did you have a certain masterclass book? Are there certain books where you think, I really want to understand this? Like when a magician sees a truly wonderful trick and goes, this is the one I have to most deeply understand or, or, or maybe a few of them because... Well, I, I, the one I've thought for years was just, well, maybe two actually. I thought The Day of the Jackal by Frederick Forsyth was just so, I mean, it's a pretty simple story, right? I don't want to give it away to everybody, but uh, Assassin uh, gets himself hidden somewhere and, you know, attempts to kill de Gaulle. You know, that's not very complicated, but holy cow, talk about a slow reveal and you never really know how, what, what he's going to use to get where he needs to be. And I just thought it was just so... Um, arduously twisted and yet just exquisitely tense to read. And then um, The Eye of the Needle, Ken Follett. I, I read that he wrote that entire book in one month. 
you know, he, he had a frantic month where he wrote The Eye of the Needle, but it's just so clever. And I was reading an article with uh, that, that he wrote later, and because he wrote that when he was quite young. And uh, as he was reading it later in life, he went back and got, oh, clever boy. That, that was a smart little thing to do in there because he hadn't even realized at the time, you know, the, the methods by which he was effectively telling the story. And, and so just as a, as a bizarre aside, to have specifically reread uh, The Day of the Jackal, just as like a masterclass study of how you could write a book like that, to now have Frederick Forsyth have read the, the Apollo murders. And he, he wrote this huge laudatory paragraph about my book. And then and he was kind enough to let me put a little quote from that on the back of the book. I mean, it, it just, it, it, it's surreal to me that, that that loop could close in that way. And I, I'm just, I'm kind of um, amazed and, and uh, in disbelief that that actually happened. But in a way, that's what's brilliant about the book is that it's a, there is this genre. And certainly I grew up, you know, on my parents' bookshelves, I think it was my dad that read them there was pretty much everything Frederick Forsyth had written. You know, there was a whole collection of things like that. And we're all, you know, certainly people of my age are familiar with that. And yeah, this is, it's kind of a new story in an old way, in a new way. I mean, it's this brilliant mixture of perspective that you have now, but also on what happened then. And, and was that interesting, like writing yourself back into the, like imagining what it would have been like, you know, in the space programme before your time there? I, I was um, delighted at the richness of the vein in order to go in and try and mine out a story. Um, you know, if you just take the title, The Apollo Murders, it it's kind of defines what, you know, what you're going to do. Apollo, so it's got to be between 1967 and 1974 or so, and murders, not murder, murders. So somehow I've got to kill at least two people um, in the Apollo program. So that, so, okay, so now I've got the, the time and I've got kind of a, a, a set of bounds. But when you start digging into all the stuff that was going on with this huge civil unrest, and of course, it's an American story with the Apollo program, with the civil unrest in the late 60s and early 70s, with the end of the Vietnam War, with, uh, with finally the, the rise of women's rights becoming really part of uh, American norms and politics, with Watergate going on and the failing of the Nixon administration, and the height of the Cold War, and the winding down of the of the space race to the moon all of that was just interwoven and, and there was some really cool secret stuff going on that just very recently got declassified so it just it gave me this great uh backdrop in order to uh to be able to then weave uh, a complex plot in amongst a complete hard set reality of what was going on it, it was great fun to write as you say it took a lot of research Fortunately, I've flown in space three times, so I have that familiarity. But to get it right for the Apollo era, to understand how you know the FGB worked and and the the Soviet space program at the time, and I did live in Russia for five years and was NASA's director of operations there, so that greatly helped as well. But uh, the internet was my friend for sure in writing the Apollo murders. Did you find any? Were there any points where accuracy? versus thrills that kind of moment where you go do you know what for the how much how much can i bend something because i imagine some of the people who are going to read this book will be thriller readers who just want to read a thrilling novel others will of course be those space enthusiasts who i imagine have told you things about what you did on the iss which you don't even know you did you know that you know those kind of people but i don't think i did do that i think you did actually so i imagine there must have been certain points where you just went oh man i can only bend this idea so much 
I wanted the book to be 100% credible. You know, my, my reputation is, is pretty much tied in with knowing what I'm, and my life is tied up with knowing what I'm doing and what the limits are. Um, there were a couple things that I went, okay, uh, I have to change the direction that a Saturn V rocket launches out of Florida in order for it to line up with the, with the orbit of the, of the Soviet spy space station, Almaz. So now it's a big question because they always just launched perfectly east out of Florida. So you get the spin of the earth. You're already spinning towards the east. If you head up the coast, then you lose all of that, that natural speed of just the spin of the planet. So that means you have to strip all the weight off the Saturn V. But I did, I did the research and I looked it up and talked to some experts and they said, yeah, yeah. Uh, you could have done that. And, and, you know, all I had to work really hard to push at the very edges, but that's, you know, I worked in mission control for 25 shuttle flights and that's what it's sort of like, like law school or something. You aren't learning in the middle of the road. You're learning the fringes of the law. In this case, uh, when you're working in mission control, you're not just doing the easy stuff. You're always pushing the very edge. How far can we push this capability or let this test run or how well can the vehicle behave so we can still get done what we want to do? And so it was like a big detective story of its own, trying to figure out how to make all these things work. And I, I'm really looking forward to getting the book out there to you know a lot of people so that those very uh, picky readers can really dig in and find the inevitable small things that, that I got wrong or I didn't know about. Um, but, but at this point, at least uh, for, Ed, for the first edition, I've done my best. Because I always think of Interstellar, the arguments with Interstellar where, you know, obviously Kip Thorne wanted it to be entirely scientifically accurate. And then that point where Christopher Nolan went, there's just this one thing. I'm sorry, but there's a point in plotting where, and of course there they've got a slightly more, fa because as we know, contemporary physics is predominantly fantastical and fairy tales. Most of it's made up, I think. So that's right, isn't it, Helen? I I'll think. keep quiet. We shall yeah. all of that now. I have another question though about the, the readers, because the thing that struck me reading this, one of the things was that when these books were originally written, you know, when Frederick Forsyth was writing the, the books we all know very well, they were written for a Western audience who knew that the, the Cold War was going on and the Russians were the other side and they were not expecting it to be read by the Russians. Now, I don't know whether the Russians have another have their own literary tradition of Cold War novels. And um, how like how how was it, it feel weird to write a novel which is set in uh, which is a war which um, there's us and them, but you, the whole point of the International Space Station is that it was both us and them. Did you right. feel like you, there was any betrayal there? Or, I mean, are you worried about what the Russians might say about it? Well, I, I was a Cold War combatant. Uh, I, I flew an armed F-18 to intercept an armed Soviet bomber that was in Canadian airspace. You know, with just one thumb switch and one finger pull, I, I could have started a pretty serious international incident. But then seven years later, uh, I was helping to build the Russian space station Mir after the fall of the Soviet Union. So I've been sort of in a real uh, pointy end position, both during the Cold War and then during the, uh, the cooperative space ventures that have happened since. And the book is already published or being published in Russian. So I'm pretty interested to hear what all my Russian friends uh, or you know, former friends uh, think of it. But when you read the book, um, I think, as you've found, uh, it's very tempting, especially, you know, 60s and 70s, the, you know, bad guy Soviets, you know, but it, in my mind, really, one of the strongest and most positive characters in the book is 
Soviet, is Russian, and you know, one of the most admirable people. And the Americans are by no means perfect. And they, you know, they they do some pretty nefarious things in here. But both of those are complete reflections of reality. And, and something you may not know, the space shuttle. Was the the government and NASA didn't have enough money to help build the space shuttle when they were just designing and starting to build it. So they had to get money from the Department of Defense, specifically from the Air Force. And the Air Force then got to specify what the space shuttle would do, including launch out of California, get to orbit, do open the doors, do a fast spacewalk, grab a Soviet satellite, pull it inside the space shuttle, close the doors and land all in one orbit. That was the mission design for the US space shuttle. And that, that was just revealed and declassified just a couple of years ago. So when you look at the reality of, of, the, of sort of the intent in space, sort of almost a warlike intent of the United States and the Soviet Union at the time, I think the book now can be much more even-handed and just show that it's people with their own particular strengths and weaknesses, doing the things that they believe in, that they think are patriotic, that that you know that is part of the culture that they live in, and and I worked really hard to try and make the book just be realistic, not just technically, but but from a geopolitical and, and personal point of view also. What about those? Because it's an interesting book in the fact that it has as well as as fictional creations of yours it has real people it has people who who were who you know whose history has been written about and uh, i mean i imagine there was some pressure sometimes where he thought uh do you know what i've given him a very small part and do you know what? i think he'd have probably liked to have appeared in this more but that bit of as you're writing the the lives of real people uh, who've actually existed how how difficult was that to sometimes think about where you can take them well, I, well you know i'm a brand new writer so i started writing the book you know like okay let's just start writing and suddenly i realized geez, I have to give like Kissinger dialogue and I, I have, and am I allowed to do that? And am, am I going to get sued? And so I wrote my publisher, hey, uh, what am I allowed to do with characters that, that were real people? Because in reality, I think over half the characters and over half, if you count them up, are, are real people. And so um, he said, no, it's fine. So long as you're not like libelous and slanderous, so long as you're just bringing a person to life, it's fine. But it is, of course, different in each country. And the book is going to be published in multiple countries. And every country has their own particular set of laws. So it's a little bit of a, of a tightrope to be walking on. But from my understanding, uh, just from a legal point of view, I think I'll be fine. But it was actually because it's 1973, there's uh, a lot of relatively recent history, lots of photographs of those people, but also often audio recordings, you know, of Nixon talking or Kissinger. Or, I couldn't find any of, of the Soviets, Chalamet, but some of my minor characters are real people as well. The, the driver of the rover on the, on the moon, Lunachod, you know, he's Gabdukhai Latipov, Gabdul, you shorten his name to. Gabdul's a real guy. You know, he's a Tatar who worked on there and did all those things. And, I, and he's still alive. And I brought him to life. So I, it made it really fun trying to, you know, look into the eyes of this person in the picture and then put myself into the situation that they were in, try and study the environment and then react the way that they would have reacted and what their hopes and dreams were and how they were taking pride in, you know, in this particular phase of their life. But yeah, it, it, it if anything, for me, it made the book uh, both more fun, but also, I think, more interesting because these are real people doing real things that are there in the historical record. And now it was what James Cameron, who uh, he wrote me a nice thing on the back, but he said, 
the Apollo mission that never really happened, or did it? And that was what James told me to say, because it, it's so close and interwoven with reality that it, that it almost becomes uh, completely believable. But look what you might have done. This could be you could have created a new Capricorn one. Do you remember the movie Capricorn, which, of course, oh, now oh. is genuinely used by people as, oh, I'll tell you why Capricorn one with James Brolin was made. It was made because, you know, if they'd landed on, they didn't really land on the moon. So it's an it's an interesting thing is that anyone playing with fiction, which involves the real world, you think, I bet this ends up on David Icke's site at some point, you know, and in itself, that's a fun game because that's only going to be a small number of people. But it's an interesting game to see how reality and the invention of your minds can play out with other people. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And uh, I am intrigued, as you say, some people just want a rip snorter, you know, story. And some people are really interested in the political history and some of the technical history. So it'll be fun. I'm, I'm currently in a reading group just looking at artificial intelligence and people. And we started by reading Frank and Mary Shelley, you know, Frankenstein and right through to some the the the, um, the selfish gene and then through to some current AI stuff. It's been quite interesting to read. But what I love out of that is out of this big group of readers, just the diversity of interpretation and thought and how the book isn't the end of anything. The book is just the opening gambit in everybody else's interpretation and thought and, and then maybe subsequent you know, decisions and actions and, and education. So yeah, I'm looking, we're just in the, uh, in moving my pawn forward in, in, in how people are going to respond to this book so it's pretty exciting getting close to uh you know getting close to launch i'm 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 always fascinated in thriller writers in where you began in terms of where you were with the story before you started typing because you know with some people i know that they don't even know who the murderer is and i love that thing ian rankin was again on another documentary the other day talking about the fact that he'll suddenly go oh, hang on a minute, I think he's done it. And then there's, of course, a lot of other people who will, the whole thing, you know, post-it notes and an elaborate kind of design of graphs to say, this is my destination and these are the actions of these people. Where were you in that kind of uh, world? Yeah, I, I've heard that Lee Child, who writes the Jack Reacher series, he just starts writing. And it actually sort of shows, it's just, it's just he's, it's almost as if you're chronicling an unfolding story as if it were really happening and nobody actually knows how it's going to turn out when you read jonathan kellerman with his alex delaware and milo sturgis series i think he sort of maps it out but he very much lets the story tell itself by just what would each of these people naturally done next and so i looked at both of those because i like how both of those are written and uh what i saw was i need motives that are going to justify the actions that i need I actually, I, why would someone kill? What is worth killing for? Or why would they have this, this uh, military action? What is the, I needed to make sure that there was enough raw motivation there to make these things happen. And then obviously being an Apollo mission, it gave me a natural story arc, which helped, you know, there's preparation, launch, flight, moon, return, splashdown that, you know, that there's a chronology that, that, uh, that becomes sort of self-evident. Um, but I, I developed a timeline. I filled it in with all real stuff. And then 
whenever I had my characters doing things, I would, I would fill out that timeline. But I regularly, Robin, wrote myself into corners all the time. Like, oh, well, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. And then my wife, Helena, and I would go for a long walk with the dogs. And I would tell her where I am. And, and she reads and devours and watches everything. And so she would say, oh, well, you could do this, or you could do this, or you could do this, or maybe this could happen. And most of them are like, no, that couldn't happen. And then they'd be like, oh, hey, yeah, that I, that's going to solve this problem. So I'm, I'm somewhere in between having a master plan and just, just forging off confidently and thinking I can solve all the problems. And for the next book that I'm writing, I, I've, I've got the whole story arc in my head. I've got some serious uh, motivation and, and detail problem I still have to solve, but I can't solve them for me anyway, until I start writing them. And once I start writing them, then you know, details will reveal themselves that will give me enough room, I think, to be able to work my way through the whole plot. And that works for me. And that was one of the things I learned from Stephen King and from you know the other writers that had given ideas of how they write was uh, you've got to find a way that works for you as the writer. And, and we're, we're all just as different as everybody else. And so that you know, on, a, on, a, on an end of one, you know, having went, written one fiction book now, I think that's the way that I write you know, thriller fiction. And I wanted to ask just about you've mentioned obviously you know your experience is is in, in, important in 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 this and I was thinking the first scene where you end up with the 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 lead character there's a there's a basically a bird strike there's a kind of being I, th I think I'm allowed to give away the first chapter aren't I Some like, of the isn't it happen. funny that we call it a bird strike. I don't think the bird did the striking, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I have done lab tests on uh, uh, F-19 cockpits. I used to work in a lab where they did uh, projectile experiments. And so I have done bird strike tests. And I really, this is completely irrelevant, but I really wound up my co-experimenter by painting little faces on the birds. Because <laughs> you use bits of plastic that are the right weight. And yeah, I wasn't asked to do it again. Anyway. <laughs> maybe we maybe we put that intention in the bird because it just makes the story less bleak, doesn't it? It's yeah. what the bird wanted to do it really wanted to go directly into that plane but you start off with someone who's basically they're bleeding and they become blinded by the blood in their eyes and, and immediately made me think of you know you had an incident in space fortunately not involving blood but which that came straight back to me well i yeah, a couple different things i have done spacewalks and, and there are obviously spacewalks in this book so that was very helpful to me and the problems that can occur inside a spacesuit or inside a, a a dangerous vehicle like the one at the start um, but uh, the, the thing that happens in the opening prologue of this book um, is, is very much based on a thing that happened to me. Um, and, uh, and so I have that direct experience, but it, it didn't have quite the same outcome, fortunately. But I, I do know a guy, uh, a fighter pilot from the Cold War, who um, hit a bird at high speed at low altitude and it came through and it did demolish uh, his left eye. And there's, there's an old British test pilot who was blind in one eye because of an aviation accident as well. So, you know, I want things to be credible, but then I need to tell the story in a way that, you know, is compelling and real. And so being able to take my own personal experience and then the experience of others and then use that in order to develop a character who could be a recurrent protagonist, right? Because, you know, he's, he's very much involved in everything and very aware of everything, but he's now got a physical disability that's gonna keep him from doing what he might have other natu otherwise naturally done. 
you know, it, it just gave, it was the very first chapter of the book that I wrote was, I just sat down at Christmas two years ago and wrote that prologue thinking, okay, this is how I'm going to establish my first character. Um, and then it was months before I wrote anything else. But, but yeah, it's, it's based on reality. And also, as you say, trying to work uh, under extremely hazardous conditions when there's something getting in both eyes where, where you can't function. That happened to me during my first spacewalk and I was blinded for about a half hour. And, and so that, that thought was also uh, in my head as I was thinking, how would Kaz react here? And what would be the next thing he does? And what would be his thoughts? And, and how would his heart be racing? How would he feel? And then when you when you succeed or, or fail, when you get to the end of this particular event, how, how do you, you know, what is the, what is the immediate aftermath? And my own experiences, I think, help put, inject some reality into that. It struck me very much as I was reading that, you know, I mean, your expertise comes through, but one of the areas of expertise that, of course, you must have trained in are the what ifs if things go wrong with dead bodies hanging around for example without giving too much away and um i guess this is the sort of thing that you know in pre in preparing to go into space that you have to kind of go down all those flow diagrams right what happens if this happens and then that happens and then what do you do next and it really so i was just curious about how i mean presumably you that you are trained in those things to some extent are you well i think there's a, a misperception of astronaut training obviously there you know there are now tourist astronauts that are just be able to get a tiny bit of training and strap on and go for a ride because the rockets are getting so much simpler and safer and i think that's terrific but if if you're a professional astronaut you know right out on the edge of still testing vehicles and exploring new places and things then it's still going to take uh, a whole different skill set and a lot more training um and and that's my background as well over my 21 years as an astronaut when I was asked to command a spaceship, uh, to command the International Space Station, we went through thousands of scenarios. And one of them was, well, what do I do if someone gets electrocuted and, and they die? What do I do with the body? Do we have a body bag on board? Because a body goes bad pretty quickly. You know, it goes through rigor mortis and then it starts to decompose and then it starts to swell with the gases and the maggots and the stink and all the rest of it. You know, it's, it's unpleasant, but it's real and you need a plan. And um, NASA just figured, let's make it as safe an environment as possible and minimize and make sure we launch healthy people and, and we won't have to deal with that. But I thought, well, we might and let's have a plan. So I, I just assume we have a few pressure suits on board and we could put a body, if we unfortunately had one, put it into one of those pressure suits and seal it up. Uh, and, and so that was sort of the genesis of that whole thought process of, of what, what eventually happened in one instance in the Apollo murders. Stop giving things away, Helen. Um, the, uh, <laughs> he said it's got murders on I'm, the I'm, cover. I'm always so that is, I've always I've always done this. I'm, I, this is the first time I'm not going to make that mistake. I always do an accidental, terrible spoiler reveal when talking about thrillers in a way which never happens when I'm talking about books about evolution. Because um, I refuse you know, the, to feel guilty. It's got murders on the cover. Fair enough. Okay, this is. But this is again thinking of the cover and thinking about. I, I was wondering, you know. Uh, when at what point did you realize 
that there was a, a really renewed fascination with space exploration, which I think you played a major part in with, you know, the things that you were sending back from the ISS. Such, But it does seem now, I mean, one, there's a lot of people who wear NASA T-shirts, but I count that as the equivalent of a Ramones T-shirt. They they may not know any of the uh, songs yeah. uh, that NASA have brought out. Uh, but uh, But that bit, it does seem that in the last 15 years, in my lifetime, I remember growing up being excited by it, even though I was a little bit too young for the Apollo stuff. It was still part of our lives. I think for 20 years, it was very much in the background. And then I think in the last 10, 15 years. Um, yeah, I look for it because obviously it's been a, a thing of fascination for me since I was a kid. And uh, uh, so I look for external indicators of that. Um, and uh, how is it reflected in popular media? Are we making space movies? You know, are we making First Man and and Ad Astra and Interstellar and you know all the all the other movies, Gravity and The Martian and such? Um, and and obviously with the advent of social media, then you can see that the very transient waves of of interest. Uh, I think a lot of it is driven by the excitement of discovery and new technology and you know we're just discovering actually seeing planets around other stars and we're drilling into mars to look for fossils and elon musk he's he's like tony stark he you know he's a billionaire who's inventing new technologies that are opening up the universe to us like we've never seen before and and you know there's always good and bad with everything but but at the same time this is a very exciting when i was born no one had flown in space nobody i was born slightly before gagarin flew so all of this has happened within my lifetime and right now it's accelerating away and and um and when i came back from my third space flight i worked really hard during my my long space station command to share the experience and there were measurable changes to people's behavior, which surprised me. Uh, they discussed it in the Irish Parliament of how the next uh, educational season, the number of kids that had signed up for maths and sciences had increased by, I forget the number, 15% or 20% directly attributable to the inspirational influence that, that my sharing of the experience had had. And, and so, that was quite startling to me that that there could be a, a measurable cause and effect. But yeah, I see ripples of that all the time. And and I think it's good. There's a lot of complex things happening on the surface. Most of them need to be solved. You know, if we're going to feed all these people through technological means, people intuitively get a sense that we need to make our technology keep up with our with the problems that we create. And um, and that the people that are doing that, you know, and the and the space awareness of our own planet and the ability to measure and the technologies of gps and and you know internet from the sky and such all of those things are intertwined and this this is truly the space age so yeah i get constant feedback that this is a pretty interesting and exciting time and so now to be able to weave you know how we got here into a thriller story i, I think um it, it allows me to tell that story in a very human and, and direct way and, and weave into the full narrative of where we are right now. Well, That's what I think, sorry. Well, as I said, it sort of points the way towards the more human complexity because the story, I mean, for people who don't sort of follow the ins and outs of, of what's happened in space, it's been, it looks like a simple story from the outside. You know, for the past 30 years, uh, every so often on the news, a rocket launches, there's some astronauts, you know, it, it, it's a sort of simple, it's a very simplified story. And actually, I we've been relatively lucky in space, or perhaps it's just the result of lots of training and experience that 
very terrible things, wars and conflicts and murders, have not, as far as we know, <laughs> you might know, <laughs> have not, as far as we know, happened in space. But but what this what your book does is it sort of points the way towards space becoming complicated again, you know, more interesting and rich and human, but also just complicated and geopolitical and not always nice. <laughs> and well, I guess I'm, that is the way of the future, right? I'm the chair of a foundation uh, called the Open Lunar Foundation. And our entire uh, purpose is to try and look into that complexity and more the geopolitical legal complexity, because our technology is about to let us settle on the moon. You know, we've recently discovered billions, hundreds of billions of liters of water frozen into the craters of the moon. So we have a vast resource of water. And at the poles, you are always in sunlight. So there's eternal solar power. And that's a new discovery. We have power and water. So we just need a, a, an airtight habitat and we can live there. That's kind of new and interesting. And our technology is going to take us there pretty soon with what Elon and others are building. Um, but what are the laws? You know, if someone kills someone else on the moon, who, whose court would they be tried in? And what are the property rights on the moon? You know, and 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 also, are we just going to import a little Russia and a little America and a little China and and plant them in you know different locations on the moon? And you know, our our current geopolitical snapshot, as if that's what we would design if we could start over again. You know, this is a chance to to some degree like we did with Antarctica, maybe have a different set of rules. And so, so I'm looking at that side of it, you know, in my other life as well. And, and we're working very hard with governments and the United Nations and, lot, and lots of commercial companies to, to actually start talking about just that, the complexities of it and the human stories of it. We've had people living on the space station continuously for 21 years now. And, and it is not just automatons and robots. It's a bunch of people you know, with hopes and dreams and failings and strengths and, and seeing the world in a new way. And, and rather than just write a picture book or a children's book, to be able to write a complex, twisted thriller of how people really feel and their, and the, their weaknesses and their foibles and, and their reactions. And, you know, how do you throw up and how, how do you go to the bathroom and what is it really like and what do you actually say? I got the freedom to, to dig into all of that in the Apollo murders, which, which was great fun to write. Hello, sorry to disturb the conversation. Just to say you are listening to the abridged version of Josie and Robin's book shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version, then you can support us via Patreon and get all of the other bits of tittle tattle that dropped out of our mouth. Um, but I, I wonder, this is a, one of my traditionally very stupid questions, but I'm kind of intrigued by, in terms of the Apollo astronauts, if you could choose a team out of them, if you could have imagined who would have been the ones that might have been the ones to go to Mars, because of course we know lots of different things about the temperaments and uh, and the psychology uh, of of those, uh, all, all men obviously, um, would you, who would you see as being those that would have been the best to do something of that length? Well, I think... Uh, you need a combination of brashness, but you also need a um, a quiet and a calm. You you need a person who doesn't need other people to uh, entertain them, uh, you know, kind of a reserve, but a really deep competence. And strangely enough, it was beautifully written by Andy Weir in The Martian in the character called Mark Watney that he created, who was then played by Matt Damon in the movie. That mixture of deep, deep, excuse me, deep technical competence, a good, strong physical body, 
and, and then almost a, a bottomless pit of, uh, of optimism and willingness to just accept the reality of what has happened and then make the best of it and move forward. You need people like that. And so if, if you look back at the Apollo program, it, you know, we had some real early hard, hard ass people, you know, and because you need a mix of those to, to do things for the first time as well. And, and you wouldn't want one of those in a long duration flight, but probably someone like Mike Collins, who was orbiting the moon while Neil and Buzz on Apollo 11 were on the surface. You need someone like Mike, who is calm, who doesn't need to be the guy out front, who knows his stuff beautifully, who has a really deep mind. He wrote a wonderful book called Carrying the Fire, which is just so technical, but philosophical and so beautifully observational. So. Uh, you know, the guys in the program who were like Mike Collins, you need someone like Neil Armstrong, I think also, who has proved himself multiple times to be uh, immensely technically competent, but also uh, was kept to himself to a large degree and, and wasn't expecting other people to, you know, to uh, be super impressed with him all the time in order to feel good about himself. There are lots of folks like that through the program. Probably want to take Charlie Duke as well, who flew with John Young. Charlie's a wonderful guy. He's the youngest of the moonwalkers. And um, he and his wife, deeply religious folks, really lovely people. And so I guess, yeah, if, if I were to take Charlie and, and Mike and, and Neil, I think they'd have a pretty good shot. You might want four people going to Mars, but, but still, um, you know, that type of subset of all of those very bright and capable people. I love that thing you when you were mentioning that you were born just before human beings had actually gone into space. And Charlie Duke always tells that story that his his dad could not believe that he'd been to the moon, and his son was like, "Where well, you've been to the moon? Whatever." And I, you know that, that's such a. Um, you you were mentioning AI, and I just wondered what are the most interesting kind of books you've been reading about AI at the moment because there's there's so many. Do I mean very philosophical books at the moment coming out about artificial intelligence? Yeah, gosh, I. Uh... What I the trouble with an electronic reading group is that I forget the titles of the books that I'm reading, I, and I'm all entranced um, in the book, but I, I don't remember the names of them. But we've written or we've read some uh, fiction uh, that have sort of extrapolated the current fascination with social media and technology, and then driven it into a dystopian future, or a bunch of short stories, you know, about the same sort of topic, uh, or then pretty analytical things about. Uh, how the the current trends and capabilities are going to go in the future but i i i, I apologize but i unlike you um you're such an incredible uh, mind for that sort of things uh, i've been very focused on content and and i don't have the names in front of me i should that is why e-readers are not as good as real books <laughs> i have this because i forget right i read on an e-reader and then i buy the same book because i've forgotten <laughs> and it's maybe really annoying maybe that's the idea right I don't, <laughs> Uh, uh, but, it's uh, interesting study though because they have said that there is something about the amount of retention which is there's been very i think it's still early days in terms of studying that i can't do e-readers i can't really do i i have to i need that physical manifestation there's a deliberate act to oh yeah this this person this page finger movement and all that whereas when it's just electronic, it's the ideas just sort of pass by you in amongst the noise of everything else. I, the the utility and the portability and the the ease of use of e-readers and the fact that it's a backlit reader obviously has some pretty strong felt selling features. And I do a lot of my reading electronically as a result. But uh, but yeah, I, they are not completely interchangeable for sure, as evidenced by uh, 
by my inability to remember who what what the title of the book is. Well, what we should make clear, though, is that I'm quite good at sometimes remembering names, but I have no ability to understand anything. And I feel that I've probably got the less useful side of things. Um, as somebody who is still not released an album, been in space or written a thriller, I feel I'm lagging desperately behind on this one. Yeah, I think you can yeah, be forgiven of... not remembering. Yeah. Your <laughs> You're one of the most acerbically observational and funny people I know, Robin, and 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 I'm, I'm hoping this year we can uh, ro- reopen enough here in Canada that you'll be able to come over for our big uh, science tech and ideas show again. In uh, I think it's in February this year. So wow. I'm hoping that's going to work. Oh, I did want to mention, though, that my British publisher made this galley version of the Apollo murders that is so cool because it's bound in black and, and it's got this entire, you know, got this entirely different cover with uh, with the foil look and it, it was just and there was a huge dem- everything's in this red foil it's just it's such a provocative thing and and so I, I just got a couple copies of this and it, it's sort of like this neat side benefit of of the book is to have this this rare and and completely limited edition version of the book so I'm, I'm glad I got a copy of it too well, yeah, it's great. And you've got, you've got. And I was actually, they sent me both. And I was actually slightly disappointed when the hardback came because it didn't have black pages on the outside. And I thought, that was so cool. Why did you get rid of that? Yeah. So I, everyone I, can I get their felt tip pens out and ink it. <laughs> I think it's uh, two, two different organizations or two different, you know, setups within the same organization. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, uh, I just thought this was such a unique uh, way to, to publish uh, a book, especially just one of the early release galleys and i do think if you carefully read word by word uh helen between the two uh james cameron when he read an early version of the book he said hey no as a movie maker and a script writer there are two things you've got to change in the book and he told me his reasoning why and i went back through and he was right and so in between you know the early version and the final version it's not just the cover but there are a couple key things in there the way i revealed something and when that he said you've got you got to do this for the reader um or, or you're going to catch a lot of flack for it and, and the story will be better and I, I took both those pieces of advice and fixed them and you know if anybody knows how to tell you know, a, a Terminator or or whatever, a Titanic story, it's him. So I figured I better listen to him. I feel I've got homework now. <laughs> it's like that really, you know, that thing where they bring out two versions of a movie and they say, here's the director's cut and it's 12 seconds longer. And you go, oh man, what is it? Which bit of this is? Uh, um, oh, Chris, thank you so much for uh, for joining us. The book is out now. And, uh, and it is. it was such an interesting thing to read because I don't read many thrillers. And so it was very exciting, that bit where you just said, I think because I'm always reading for some kind of research or, or other. And so that bit of just going, right, this is, but you're right, in, in terms of just going, I can see why people do read thrillers. My wife reads thrillers all the time because you just go in that and you are, you're in a totally separate world and you are moving at an incredible speed. And uh, that's the trouble is I sometimes move too fast and then go, hang on, who is this guy? That's, I mean, did you sometimes do that? Because that, that's a trick as well, which is every now and again, you find you some books, you go, it's been too long since I met Dave. And now I can't remember who Dave is. And I'm going to okay. have to find where Dave was before. That in itself, I imagine, is, is quite a tricky business. It is. Uh, trying, And I, I hate that when that happens. And some where I have to keep notes in order to keep track where the author obviously knows who everybody is. But but the reader, it, it, and you might have to put the book down for a week and then pick it up later and you're going, 
wait a minute, I don't recognize any of these people. Um, and, and so, you know, I was deliberate in my name choices so that people had a distinct name, but also um, I find it's better to give a little gift to the reader. Uh, just give them a couple adjectives uh, when, when a character who hasn't been in the book for 20 pages, just so they, oh yeah, I, I know who that is. Um, if you can possibly do it. I consider it a kindness to the reader because I'm so frustrated when an author uh, doesn't do that for me. So I tried not to be that guy, you know, in writing The Apollo Murders. I would love if that's actually how the books work, that it would actually just go, Paul came in. You remember the one with that funny hat? Anyway, <laughs> I just exactly as friends. You know, remember the guy, the guy with, do you remember he had that, the shoe that was weird looking? Um Thank you so much. As we said, Apollo Murders is uh, is out now. Are you? I presume you're because of the way everything is. Are you coming to the UK at all to do any events, live events? Weirdly enough, at least for now, everything uh, is virtual. I, there, we just, you know, how am I going to sit down and have people come and and talk to me face to face and me sign their book and take a picture with them? We just can't mechanically find a way quite yet with COVID to do that. Uh, I've done things with a plexiglass sheet between me and a person, but. You know that's that's hardly satisfactory so we're getting there but uh, in the near term it's going to all be virtual but as soon as things are safe i'll be uh, i'll be traveling as much as i can that plexiglass thing i did that at the wigton festival this week where everyone's wearing a mask and i'm behind plexiglass sorry who was that two again sorry sorry i didn't go dave okay dave i got it yeah you're right it takes a long time but at least it creates the illusion of a queue when i'm doing a signing um <laughs> thank you very much. Get get that. But th Helen, thank you so much for joining us and uh, and being uh, Josie today as well. Um, and uh, thank you to our producer Trent Burton. And I I don't know who we're going to have next week because I'm not quite sure what order we're putting things out. But we'll be back again next week with uh, another book shambles. Thanks uh, thanks for having me. And it was it's a delight to see you both again, even virtually. And I very much look forward to the next time we're sitting on a couch around a table together. <laughs> Thank you very much to Helen for joining us today and of course to Chris Hadfield. Thank you very much to our producer Trent Burton and uh, if you can, some of you uh, already do, and quite, quite a few of you already do but uh, we do need more support for our Patreon. If you are able to support us for our Patreon patreon.com slash bookshambles you get longer episodes of uh, bookshambles. We've got loads of people coming up and I think we're quite a few weeks we've got two episodes going out as well so uh, do if you can support us via Patreon, patreon.com slash bookshambles. Bye bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Yeah.